and welcome to Into the Verse, where we share new and unexpected insights about the Parsha, diving deep into the verses to uncover the Torah's own commentary on itself. Hi, I'm Imu Shalev. This week, we're going to talk about something we don't talk about all that much here, and that's the Torah Shabal Peh, the Oral Torah. One of our passions at Aleph Beta is to show some of the amazing depth and insight that sometimes gets overlooked in the written Torah, or the five books of Moses. But there's an oral Torah, which was eventually written down in the Mishnah and Talmud, that's a companion to the written Torah, explaining what exactly the laws mean and how to apply them in everyday situations. Well, today we're going to talk about one of the really confusing things about this written Torah, oral Torah setup, and that is, why is it even necessary? For example, in this week's Parsha, we hear about the law, Lo Tevashel Chalevi Mo, the law against cooking a kid in its mother's milk. Great, I'll be sure not to cook a kid in its mother's milk. Now come along those pesky rabbis in the oral law and tell you, no eating milk and meat together. Huh? Where'd they get that from? Is that what the oral law is? A place for rabbis to let out their legal creative juices? So we obviously don't think that. We think that the sages were careful readers and interpreters of Torah texts, but how are we meant to think of the oral law and how it works together with the Torah? Rabbi Foreman tackles this crucial question in today's episode. Here he is. All right, guys, cheeseburgers, everybody. It's the classic non-kosher food. And it's not kosher not just because the meat wasn't slaughtered properly. Even if you slaughtered the meat according to Jewish law, it's still not kosher. According to Torah law, milk and meat cannot be cooked together. But the problem is, if you actually look in the Torah, you will never find a verse that actually says this, milk and meat can't be cooked together. It would seem like such a simple thing to say, don't cook milk and meat together. And yet, that's not how the Torah says it. The actual written Torah expresses this law very differently. The verse that's the source for not cooking milk and meat together is a verse in this week's parsha: Lo Tvashel Gadiba Chalevi Mo, do not boil a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. So you say, how come I can't eat my cheeseburger? I'm not boiling like a kid in its mother's milk when I eat a cheeseburger. What is going on here? Why does the written Torah say one thing, and the oral Torah that explains these laws to me tells me something else? Now, there are reasons for this. Our belief is, is that the oral Torah at least the main principles and interpretations of the Oral Torah, were passed to Moses along with the written Torah at Sinai, and these interpretations were passed down from generation to generation orally. What I want to talk with you about is what the rationale behind that is. Why have a written law and an oral law at all? The written law says what it says, why don't I just do that? How come there has to be a discrepancy at all between the written law and the halachic legal expression of that law? So I think to attack this point, we really need to look at the role of law itself within the Torah as a whole. Because, you know, I might just take the devil's advocate position that why do I have to have so many laws? 613 laws in the Torah? I mean, if the Torah is trying to guide me spiritually, why doesn't the Torah talk about lofty, overarching concepts like love and why don't I spend my days in meditation? What am I doing keeping to this legal code? Legal codes don't seem so spiritual. How could you have a religion based upon law? What is the role of law? So I want to just point out by way of observation 
that, you know, this question about law being so mundane, we might respond to that by saying, in a sense, law fits life. Because life is mundane. It's not just law that's mundane. Life is mundane. Life is like a cross-country trip. I remember driving cross-country in 2001 with my kids. Every once in a while, you get something really spectacular. Mount Rushmore, Yosemite, Zion National Park. And these things are really inspiring. But other than that, it's cornfields. I mean, there's a lot of cornfields out there, and one just looks like the other. And that's kind of like life. Life has a lot of routine in it. It's it's board meetings. It's picking up the kids from carpool. It's making lunch. It's bedtime. Filing reports for your boss. It's all of these things. And yes, there are these grand symphonic moments in your life, your wedding day, your 10th anniversary, these glorious family vacations to Disneyland and the Alps and all that stuff. But those are just the things that punctuate our our regular mundane existence. It's not the main stuff that life is made out of. So is it mostly about just living for the grand moments and that's the exciting thing and I just have to put up with the cornfields? Or is there spirituality in the cornfields also? I think the Torah's position is very firmly, there's spirituality in those cornfields. And that's where law comes in. The purpose of law is to take some of those lofty ideals and to find ways to bring them into everyday life. There's a poem that I really like from Emily Dickinson. I'm a fan in general of her poetry. One of the poems I like of hers is one called Deed, and it talks about this. The poem goes like this. A deed knocks first at thought, and then it knocks at will. That's the manufacturing spot, and will at home and well. It then goes out and act, or it's entombed so still that only to the ear of God its doom is audible. Now, what was she talking about here? She was talking about why it's important that we actually do things in life and not just hold on to abstract ideals. She's arguing that anything that we do, if you kind of take it apart, there's a three-step process involved. Before we do it, it begins as a thought. We have to think about some sort of ideal that we want to reach for. Wouldn't it be great if there was less drunk driving on the roads? But then that thought has to go knocking on a door, the door of will, emotion, passion. In other words, the next question is, can that thought engage your emotions and get you to feel fired up, interested, and passionate about it? You see the pain in the face of a mother who lost her child to a drunk driver, and you say, that's terrible. You got fired up about that. The next thing you do is you say, I'm going to do something about that, which is the poem's next line. Will, that's the manufacturing spot for a deed. After you get will, passion engaged, it then goes out and act. That thought is transformed into an act. You're going to do something with it. You're going to be the founder, the charter member of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Its first meeting is going to be in your living room. So yes, if that thought can get your heart excited about it, that you can have some passion and will behind that thought, then the deed will go out as an act. But if it doesn't, if you never succeed in transforming that deed into some sort of act that you actually do in real life, then the deed dies and the emotion dies. <laughs> 
the thought dies. It's all entombed so still that only to the ear of God its doom is audible. No one but God will have ever known that that thought was ever there in your head in the first place. So the upshot is, ideals are important, but how do you take those ideals and make them a part of the cornfield everyday life? Imagine a guy who's into an ideal how special his wife is. He sits on the stone floor and meditates upon this all day long. How special is my wife? He sits there with eyes closed and candles burning, just meditating about how in love he is with his wife. How impressed is wife going to be with this? You know, after a couple days, wife is going to come knocking on the door. It's like, I don't know, do you think maybe you could help out in the kitchen, change a diaper, something? It's like, if you really love me, that love, that feeling would have to translate somehow into action, even a mundane action, something. And if it doesn't, that love will die because in the human soul, thoughts don't last and even emotions don't last unless they can find an expression in the world of action. I don't care if it's a mundane expression, a mundane action, but that mundane action is a lifeboat for the thought, for the passion for the ideal. It allows it to survive in real life. So the Torah talks to us about laws, but there's two elements in laws. There are the grand ideals, and then there are the ways to express those grand ideals in mundane, everyday life, the details of the laws. So I can talk about law from each of these two perspectives. One way to talk about law is to express the grand ideals. Another way to talk about law is to express ways in which to filter down those ideals into everyday life. The first job, more or less, is done by the written Torah. The second job, more or less, is done by the oral Torah. So what that means is this. In Tarash Bechtav, in the written Torah, the Torah will sometimes express law in terms of the ideals. The oral Torah will find a way to translate that law into particular details so that I can bring the ideals into daily life. Hi, Imu here. Rabbi Foreman is making a fascinating claim that the written Torah is the place where we get an idealized kind of pure version of a law. And the oral Torah is where the law gets translated into everyday life. But that's all very abstract. What does this look like in real life with an actual law? In fact, let's ask what it looks like for milk and meat. How is not cooking a kid in its mother's milk an ideal? And how is not eating a cheeseburger a mundane way of expressing that ideal? That's what Rabbi Foreman is about to get into. So in our case, there is an ideal, an overriding ideal. Think about it. In creation, God originally did not give man the right to consume meat. It involved killing another living, breathing being. And you weren't supposed to do that. The original man was vegetarian. He and the animals shared a common food source. The grasses of the field, the vegetation of the ground, the fruits of the trees. But then, after the flood, God gave man the ability to consume animals. And yet, there are limits. You have to understand what you're doing when you're taking another life, killing another mammal like yourself for food. Milk. 
Milk isn't something you buy in a store. It's a sacred liquid for a mammal. It's how a mother nurtures a child. Meat is the opposite of that milk. It's the death of the animal. Life is nurtured through milk, but meat is about the death of that which was nurtured. So once you realize that, yes, I give you permission to eat animals, yes, I give you permission to consume milk, but would you boil a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk? You wouldn't do that, right? That would be a kind of desecration of sorts. You'd be treating that food, the milk and the meat, just as things, as mere ingredients that you just mix and match together. Okay, so that's the ideal. But how many times a day are you faced with the opportunity of boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk? It's a particular vision of an ideal. But how does that make its way into my life in a daily way? For that, we have the oral Torah. And the oral law comes along and says, let me show you how I'm going to translate that ideal into daily life. We're going to keep milk and meat separate. Every day when I have a cup of milk, every single day when I have meat, I can understand that these things shouldn't be mixed. Don't cook them together. Don't eat the products of cooking them together. They don't go together. If you don't mix milk and meat in that way, you elevate your experience of eating. You elevate your experience of shopping. Milk and meat aren't just things anymore. You've taken an ideal and made it part of your daily life. and You've therefore worked to save that ideal. It will survive through your mundane actions. And even though your life may look like a lot of cornfields, those cornfields suddenly won't seem quite as mundane as they used to be. As all of a sudden, something as simple as a trip to a store or a bite of food can become a little embodiment of a higher consciousness, a little embodiment of holiness itself. So I'm not going to lie, this presentation by Rabbi Foreman totally changed my life. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a kosher home, two sinks, two ovens, two dishwashers, two sets of dishes, fairly well-versed in the minutia of the laws of how to separate milk and meat. If the dairy spoon went into the flashic, the meat pot, would we need to rend our garments in agony of the major violation? Or would it all be okay because it's cold and we just made a mistake? I went through decades of life without it occurring to me that the laws are expressions of a higher value, of a sensitivity to the animals that we eat for food, the milk that they provide for their own young. And I got to tell you, there was something magical that happened. These laws that had felt very mundane, infused with this higher value, all the little legal minutia, the little laws felt like moments to reflect, moments to connect to that larger value. And it makes me think you kind of need both. The higher order value of being sensitive to the source of your food and appreciating the life of the animal. I mean, that's a nice fluffy ideal to pledge allegiance to. So you need law to express that ideal. If on the other hand, all you had was law, well, then you had my childhood. A lot of rules. I don't think I was really sensitive or aware of the values that those laws were meant to inculcate, which is a pretty crazy concept. You can follow all the rules, but unless they're tied to a value, you could be missing the deeper point. And it's not just kosherous. 
I was once in the car with another yeshiva friend of mine and a third person who was sort of annoyed with the many halachos, the many laws of Sabbath observance. And she said, you know, does God really care if I press an elevator button on the Sabbath? Like, I get it. So the light behind the button is perfecting the number 15. And so it's a sort of writing. Who cares? Why would God care about something like that? And my friend rightly answered, you know, when you're a part of a legal system, you follow all the rules. When you buy into the system, you don't get to decide the laws that count and the laws that don't. And I think that's true. But I think my friend answered from the space of the cornfields, the particulars of law. I wanted to answer her from the values. What I said to her was that Shabbos is about taking one day out of every seven to remember that we're not the creators of the world, but that there is a creator. And part of the way we do that is we ourselves desist from creative activity, what we call malacha. And you can see how writing is creative. So we desist from writing in all of its particulars. We take a day to just be as a testimony to the fact that God is the creator. Anyway, I don't know if she found that meaningful, but I do, because knowing the value elevates the law and gives it meaning, sort of frees it from being a burden, allows it to be an expression of something that I actually care about. So I say that this piece changed my life because it changed my relationship to Torah, to mitzvot, to halacha, encouraged me to find the beautiful interaction between the higher order values and their legal expression, to delve into the depths of rules and particulars and find the values and the beauty that animates them. It's the study of Torah of this sort that helps me find great meaning. Thanks for listening. You know, week after week, recording these episodes, sometimes I'm talking into a microphone, staring at my computer. I never get to hear what's on the other end. I never get to hear from the listeners who are listening in their car, having these aha moments in Torah, or those of you chopping onions, yelling back at the podcast, hey, you got it all wrong. Wouldn't it be nice though, if I could, if this could be a conversation? While we can't all get on one giant conference call, we think we may have found the next best thing. You can now leave us a voice message. You can click a simple link, leave us your feedback, your kind compliments, your nasty critiques, and most of all, just how these episodes landed for you. We get to hear your voice for once. And who knows, maybe you'll even be featured on the show. There's a link in the description. Just click it, click record, and let your thoughts flow. I genuinely can't wait to hear from you. Please subscribe to Into the Verse wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the six most recent episodes of Into the Verse are free, completely free, to listen to on your podcast app while the archive of back episodes is a perk for paid members on the Aleph Beta website. Aleph Beta subscribers also receive each week's Into the Verse transcript directly to their email to print or read online. That's handy dandy for Shabbat reading. You can find much more outstanding Torah on Aleph Beta's website at ab.video. Join the growing numbers of our paid subscribers who have full access to thousands of videos and podcasts on the weekly Parsha, holidays, and big ideas in Judaism. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman. When this episode originally aired on Aleph Beta, it was edited by Rifki Stern. Into the Verse editing was done by Daniel Lowenstein. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. Our editorial director is me, Imu Shalev. Thanks again for listening.